Hello, listener. Welcome to Pint Size Science, a podcast brought to you by the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences Science in the News organization. If you already listened to our last episode, How Do Songbirds Learn Their Songs, and are here for more, welcome back. If you haven't, we highly recommend checking that out afterwards. My name is Chris, and I'm responsible for bringing you today's episode. If you enjoy this episode, please consider giving us a like and sharing it with your fellow science lovers. Likewise, if there are things you think we should improve on, please consider sending us a message at sciencebythepint, all lowercase, at gmail.com. We'd love to get your feedback. For this week, we're scaling down our focus from the level of whole organisms to the level of individual cells, the most basic units of life. Specifically, we're going to be talking about mitochondria, the so-called powerhouses of the cell, whose chief function is to produce energy and keep the other components of the cell running. However, it turns out that mitochondria actually do a whole lot more than that. To learn exactly how much more, I sat down to talk with Dr. Katya Hansen, a postdoctoral research fellow in Dr. Sterling Churchman's lab at Harvard Medical School, who studies mitochondria. Specifically, she studies how mitochondria talk to the rest of the cell and the implications of this crosstalk for both basic cell biology and for better understanding human disease. Now, without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy listening in on our chat. being recorded now we're officially live um well so thank you so much katya for coming here today and agreeing to sit down and talk with me this afternoon um so i guess first and first of all you know because i don't really know much you know about what you do i know you work together with hope you know in the churchman lab and have a kind of a vague idea about what they do but kind of what's your kind of like you know again like your short kind of elevator pitch you know summary of your of your research of your project if you were going to explain this to a family member or a friend who wasn't in science I guess, like, how would you describe your work? Yeah. So I'm interested into mitochondria, which a lot of people have heard of as the powerhouse of the cell. So they're really important because they make all our energy. And if you think about a cell, they're like our body a little bit and have little organs, which we call organelles, which is the mitochondria. And I try Mm. to understand in my research how these mitochondria are actually functioning in the cell, how they are communicating, and how they are regulated, because they have to communicate to the cell in order to provide the cell with the things that the cell needs. So what I'm doing now is that I focus on a specific part of the mitochondria for my postdoc, where I try to understand how this part is actually made and regulated. But overall, I'm really interested in mitochondrial function and how they're regulated and communicating in the cell. So. Very cool. So, yeah, I mean, I think you kind of you kind of brought up the first thing that I was thinking about, which is that, you know, like in school, I feel like everyone hears about, everyone knows mitochondria, you know, like, like the powerhouse of the cell. I think that's kind of like the most, the most common tagline for it as an organelle. Um, but I think what, you know, what not a lot of people maybe appreciate is that it's a, that powerhouse is, you know, it's very complicated. And you know, we don't really think about the way that we put it together or the way that it communicates kind of with the rest of the cell outside of just functioning as like a piece of machinery. So like what you just said there about mitochondrial communication, like what do you mean by that? So you know that our cells have their own DNA. So we have DNA mm-hmm. and from this we have the genes, and then this is read and is transferred into the machineries, which provide cell functions. 
So mitochondria are really special because they have their own DNA. So our body, our cells don't have only one genome, but a second genome, which means they have also their own machinery to make little, we call it enzymes, which are like little machines who have different functions, which can make energy, which can make metabolites. So in order to get this together because parts of these machineries come from outside of the mitochondria and parts are made in the mitochondria, it's really important that the cell is communicating to the mitochondria in order to get ev actually everything functioning pretty well. It's like, a, I like to compare it sometimes to make cars. So if a, mm. uh, a company who makes cars, they might do specific parts by themselves, but they also get parts from outside. So to make a proper car, you have to get the right stuff in the right time and working to work together. So it's kind of like this. So you have a company who's making parts outside of the mitochondria and you have parts which are made inside the own company. And if this is not working, you can't build a proper car, which will lead also in the long run to problems for the whole cell because then this company is not working anymore properly, and this is then connected to diseases from, for humans. So mitochondria are really important in aging. They um, play a role in different neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson, and a lot of this is because the mitochondria are not functioning anymore, and this has to be also communicated. So if one part in a cell is not working, this is pretty Bad. So everything has to communicate to each other in order to keep it working nicely and healthy. Yeah, right. That's very, that's really, really cool. Yeah, I guess it's like, you know, you think about, um, you know, if the engine of the car is not working and the whole car isn't really, you know, the rest of the car is yeah. not able, able to do what it wants to do. Um, so what got you interested in this research? You know, I, I, it's not something that I spend a whole a lot of time, you know, thinking about it. Again, like, you know, I think most people kind of think about mitochondria like a surface level, not really necessarily the thing that's actually really alive and like talks to the rest of the cell all of the time. So yeah, what got you interested in these questions? So that was my undergrad, actually. So we had this my cell biology professor, where I did also my undergrad, my master, and my PhD with. He worked in mitochondria. And I have to say, I was always really fascinated how cells work as an ent entirety, like in how everything is connected to each other, because it's not only mitochondria are not, are not the only organelle, there are different organelles inside, and everything is connected and needs to work together. But mitochondria is somehow special because they have their own genome, and it's, it was one important part of evolution that you get these mitochondria basically to create more complex life in the end. And I was always fascinated as I really liked it. And when I was hearing about it, what is also going on beside this powerhouse of the cell that we have, it was just really interesting and intriguing for me. So I worked mm. in my bachelor there, in my master, in my PhD project was also about how basically the little machines enter the mitochondria and how they ever get there, how they are transported there. And I think it's the most interesting because they are also involved in so many different diseases and we don't understand 
so we get a better understanding, but there are still so many open questions about how everything is regulated. So there, and I'm a really curious person, so (laughs) I really like to solve puzzles somehow. So it's really interesting for me. I'm fascinated about this communication stuff. Yeah, so what do you think is probably the biggest, like, in terms of that process, you know, what's the, what are the biggest misconceptions? Like when you're trying to explain this to people, what do they, where do they usually fall apart in terms of like being like, what, like, how does that happen? Like, that's weird. Like, you know, what, what do you think? Actually, to be true, uh, I don't know. No, but people don't ask me this because I'm, I just, so usually I'm, talking more. I'm just like in the first year of my postdoc and I'm always talking more (laughs) about protein input into mitochondria because that was my field in my PhD. So uh, we don't talk that much about metabolism. Um, So the misconceptions there. Or even about protein, or even about protein transport into mitochondria too, about the communication. Let's say for the misconception is like, I think one big misconception in general is like that the mitochondria is just doing oxidative phosphorylation. And people often forget that mitochondria are more than just the powerhouse of the cell, but are also really important to do other, produce other metabolites like amino acids, which will then use to be, um, to make proteins. And one big misconception about metabolism and mitochondria regulation, I think, is like, It's specifically in yeast. So I worked during my PhD in yeast. Um, Yeast, they shut off mitochondrial biogenesis when they are grown on glucose, where they just do fermentation. But that doesn't mean that they don't have mitochondria, but they still need it because they're really essential organisms who also make heme, which we know is, for example, really important in blood for heme. It's important for transcription in the cell because the transcription factors have heme as a cofactor. So they produce so-called cofactors, which are important for some enzymes to function in the cell. And I think one of the big misconceptions in for people outside, really outside of the field, is like that it's not only oxidative phosphorylation. And this needs also to be regulated. So you have situations where you need more um, oxidative phosphorylation, so you will do more of these proteins. But then you have, again, cells that don't need that much oxidative phosphorylation, but, for example, need more heme, like blood cells. So they will make more heme and produce more of the enzymes for this. So I think this is one misconception that mitochondria just do one specific part. And then the other point that is really important is like coming from a protein targeting field, um, that these proteins, if they don't add up in the place of mitochondria, cause a lot of trouble in the cells. This is then again connected to the neurodegenerative diseases because what we've start to understand now is like if there's stress where these proteins are not imported anymore so they don't end up in the mitochondria they accumulate outside and which cause and will also be part of these aggregates that people heard of like these plaques and stuff like this so they 
are tend to aggregate a lot with, with this, and they were found to co-aggregate with these proteins. Also, like these proteins call for, which cause Parkinson's disease, they have been found to attach to these. So hmm. that's also that's so cool. That's like um, one big thing, like in the mitochondria targeting field. This is something that is now also really people start to understand that this is really important. Why, why this targeting has to be so well controlled and why they need to get there really, really quick. If you don't do this, you get a really big problem outside. Hmm. So yeah, just because there are a couple of things in there, I think that are really interesting. So just to like summarize really quick. So what you're saying is, first of all, that mitochondria don't just function as engines, yeah. right? They're not just energy powerhouses. Like they're also producing other parts, if you will, almost like they're functioning as like a factory producing parts for the yes. rest of the cell to use in all sorts of other necessary reactions and everyday processes that they need to live. Like I actually didn't know that mitochondria produced heme. That's actually news to me. That's really cool. Which heme is like, you know, one of those proteins that's really important in red blood cells or carrier, a carrier of oxygen kind of, if you will. Right. Um, so that's one interesting thing. First of all, as I, you know, that I think that's not why they recognize it. Um, then the second thing you were talking about, like in disease, right. Like you get these, like this aggregation phenotype, right. If, which like, um, if you can t- talk about for, like just for a second, right? Like for those who might be unfamiliar, like you know, with with Alzheimer's, right? You get these like plaques, like and so what is like what is a plaque? Like what do you mean by that when you talk about like an aggregate? It's just like the aggregate that people know. So it's like um, plaque means, you know, our proteins they have a specific structure usually, but in Alzheimer, for example, also in um, Parkinson's disease, what happens is you have specific proteins which tend to misfold. So they they take a different structure, which is not functional, but it's like deposited in the cell. And these, this causes that other proteins will also not reach their typical folding, their typical structure to function, but will be misfolded and then also stuck there. And then in the beginning, a cell is able to get rid of this, but over the time, it will not. It will just be filling up the cell. And this is causing a problem because this will also interfere with cell function in the long run. And the question I think there is a little bit, I'm not from this field completely, it's just like something that we touched as a targeting yeah. thing, is uh, <laughs> That's all right. um, what is really causing the problems of, this, of these aggregates in a cell? It's a different kind of question because people believe before like having these plaques, also some part, like an Alzheimer's, it's also happening outside the cells, and then everyone thought, okay, this is bad, but now I think they believe that actually not the outside one, this is just like a side effect, but in the cell, these are the real ones which are really bad. And what makes them really bad and why is this causing so a lot of issues? And one thing is like you have, it's called chaperones, proteins, machineries who try, it's like they clean the cell, basically. They help to get rid of the stuff, to unfold them, and then you have, like, a, a shredder to shred these proteins. So if you have these plaques, one idea is now a concept that a lot of these 
hyperproteins go there and then they try to get rid of this and by this you you take them away of the other functions in the cell where you would need it which will then cause to a dysfunction in the cell again so that's again showing that everything is actually connected <laughs> that's what i like it's like it's yeah right you have, don't have one thing that happens and then it's just one thing but always if you change one little thing you will end up having a lot of effects in the cell and it's not on one part right yeah so to use the analogy of a factory you know again which i think actually is working out really perfectly for this whole kind of scenario right it's like you have these reject parts kind of coming off of the assembly line, right? These misfolded proteins that don't work right. So they're just ending up as scrap on like the factory floor. And you have these chaperones coming around kind of like the janitors kind of seeing like, okay, like these are misfolded. These aren't useful anymore. They toss them in, you know, and they start to, they toss them in the bin outside, right? And then the cell kind of takes out the trash and gets rid of it in some ways. So when, but so it's not so much that the you have this accumulation in like you know like that your dumpster is getting full. It's that when these chaperones, these janitors aren't doing their job, you get the factory floor gets full of all these misfolded parts, right? And the people, the workers, trying to step around them, you know, trip and fall on their face, you know, and they're not able to do what they need to do. I guess is that does that metaphor work? Yeah, and like, I think or, it, it I works. It and basically, you're taking away like the janitor from there is an issue in the bathroom, but since the the janitor is now working on these other stuff. He can go. He can't go there to fix yeah. the issue in the bathroom. That's basically one of the ideas that is going on now. That one of the new concepts that you're taking away the janitor from the other stuff, which is really important to maintain the building functioning, and now it's just working there, which is then an issue, and that. Yeah, like instead of yeah, instead yeah. of keeping like like yeah, instead of making sure the toilets aren't clogged and the sinks are working and the hand soaps refilled, <laughs> you know, or making sure that the AC is running, like the janitor's sitting there, you know, just cleaning up, doing clean up on aisle five all day, and the same boxes of cereal keep falling off the shelf, exactly. you know, and the little kids are screaming, <laughs> and that occupies all their time. Like we've all been there. Yeah, that's how it, that's how you can describe it exactly. That's how your cells are every single day when your chaperones aren't <laughs> yeah. working. That's one thing. Very cool. So let's see. Let's see. One more question I did want to ask as well. Um, you talked before about how like there's a lot of these questions people just weren't able to study for a long time, right? I think like one thing that's really cool about doing science now is that we've come such a long way, right? You know, like the tools we have available to us, the types of questions we can answer. I think you know we get they they get more and more powerful all the time. So what are the tools in your field that have really that are empowering you to ask questions, you know, and try to delve into this topic in a way you know in ways that other people couldn't like yeah what are the i, th yeah. I think now it's like perfectly for this uh postdoc i used to work in biochemistry it's called it's like i did a lot of so-called western plots i looked into proteins and i did essays in cells, but it was still a little bit like not as broad so i did it so-called genetic screen, which was already like a big picture where you can look into diff many, many different genes, many different factors that might involve it. But in the end, I was still really focused on one part, which was really good and really exciting. And we could publish a really nice story with it. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Everything has its 
place, and it's really important also to look into the details. But I think what is really important now is that we have these new methods, these new sequencing methods, which enable us basically to look into the mitochondria and the uh, nucleus where our other genes are, like in the mitochondria genes and the nuclear genes at once at the same time, and we can look how transcription dynamics change there. Then microscopy, the microscopy changed a lot. So microscopy is really nice, even though coming from a biochemistry lab, it's we know that we have to double check in the end, but you can use microscopy and it's really powerful to image so many things also at once now because the whole new imaging techniques are coming out. Specifically, I think in the last year, we have so many new RNA fish methods that were coming out where we multiplex having what we used to do for microscopy for RNA fish. You would use like one transcripts, perhaps three, but now methods are out where they look at the whole genome at once, basically, in several steps, but you can look at many things at once. And I think the biggest advance in the biology in the moment is that we have now methods to really look on a big picture and try to look at many things at once to see how the whole cell is reacting. So I'm focusing, obviously, <laughs> on the mitochondria, but also there it's like we can now really see what is happening in the nucleus and the mitochondria, what changes in the cytosol and the mitochondria, so outside of mitochondria and mitochondria in the same time, to understand the dynamics of the regulation. Um, actually, this is a good point for me to interrupt you just for a second. Just yes. so, so like RNA fish, you just use that term. Yes. So um, for the layperson may not know exactly. So what is that exactly? So, like, t tell me a little bit about like how that technique works. Because I think what you're saying there is, is so cool. It's like this idea that we can look at these messengers deal you know, the we can basically see the information that's being passed between these cellular compartments in the form of RNA using a microscope, which I think, you know, again, when we'll still think of microscopy, right? You're thinking about like a light microscope, like where you're just like looking at things, you know, back in like, um, you know, in, again, in like a biology class in high school or something. So what's, the, what, what is, how does the te technique work? What makes it, what empowers you to do that? So what we have is like, from the genome, we make this messengers which will tell the cell basically, this is the gene that we had and we want to make out of this gene now a protein. And this is written in this messenger. So what we have is little so-called probes with a dye on them and they can interact with this messenger, they recognize it. And then in the microscope, what we see is a color. So we get a color for a specific messenger like let's say we have a, a gene called oxa1 doesn't matter what it is it's just a specific gene and then we have another one which is called cox15 and now i want to know where these messengers are in the cell so what i can do is i have a green dye which on a probe that recognizes oxa1 and i have a red dye which is on a probe for cox15 and then I can have cells on a print, on a cover slip, on a glass thingy, which we put on the microscope that we can yeah, see. Yeah, I think we all remember that little slide. That's yeah, yeah. A little slide. Um, and we can 
open up the cells a little bit, make little pores inside, basically, so that if we add a solution which has our probes, these can now enter the cells, and when they hit, basically, one of these messengers, they can bind to them and give them a dye. And then you look to the microscope, and then you can see the dye. It's a specific, it's called fluorescence microscopy. I'm not explaining now because this is really complicated again, how, how it is. <laughs> but in the end, how you can imagine it is you look through the microscope and then you can see colors and it, each color is then basically one specific messenger. And what you get is like little pancte in the cell and every pancte is then in principle one messenger. It has its limitations, obviously, but this is doable. And now we have many more dyes also, as before, and new ways to do this recognition and combinations, which makes it easier and makes it possible to combine a lot of it. Because before we couldn't do it. We just had a specific amount, very limited amount that you could add or could image at once. And now we are able to do this in a more sophisticated way and having more of the dyes at once. Yeah. So instead of like, you know, making your own, you know, mixing your own home paints in your mm -hmm. garage, you know, and trying to stick them onto things, you know, you can now, you can go to your Lowe's or your Home Depot equivalent, like these other labs that specialize, you know, and you can go up and say, hey, I want this color and I want it to act like this and stick to this type of surface. And they can mix up a dye, then a dye that will kind of do that. Yeah, they also enabled us to do it by ourselves because they make the protocols available and tell you how to do it. You still order stuff from outside, but it's really like they give you an easy recipe. Like before you before you had like a more complicated recipe or you would just order it and it would be super expensive. But now they have these tools available for everybody, basically. And I'm lucky that, for example, for what I'm doing, that I can work with the lab across the floor who was also working on this. So when I have issues, I just go there and ask them. And that's really nice. I never did much microscopy in my PhD. So I'm learning this now. And I saw some parts where I would be like, oh, wow, I never would be able to do it. I just don't know. But this <laughs> is like now made in an easy way so that some, if you're coming to the field, it is easier to understand how to do this in a more complex way than before and to do it also in a sophisticated way. It's still complicated and you have to learn still, but it's made more in a broad and open environment. Yeah. If no, I think that makes total sense. I mean, I think it's like, you know, I think it, it's a classic thing where it's like, I think people sometimes think of scientists, you know, it's like, oh, we just know how to do everything, you know, but I think it got more complicated. Like we, we have to work together as scientists now more than ever, you know, let the record show. Even scientists get confused by scientists. We need other smart people to help, you know, explain it to us, you know, to make, to figure out how these complicated techniques work. You know, that's the reality we live in. Like the tools are getting more complex and more powerful, but to do that, we have to though more and more, we have to rely on like these different specialized compartments of the scientific field to communicate with each other. Kind of like how the mitochondria communicates with different compartments of the cell yeah. and it all comes full circle. <laughs> exactly. That's how it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There you have it. Thank you so much Katya for talking today. I really appreciate you, you know, taking mm -hmm. some time on your Sunday afternoon uh, to talk about your work. And I think it's super awesome and best of luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, fun. Yeah.